Well, welcome to this episode of Infosec Real. We are super delighted today to be joined by Pedram Amini. Pedram, I honestly, I've been waiting for this in my calendar for so long because you're such an interesting character within the world of cybersecurity and information security in general. We've got a lot of topics to cover about your career history, your relationship with the industry, your investments that you make in various companies and the successes that you've had along the way. Before we get into that, before we pick you apart, if I, if you don't mind, let me throw over to you and just give us a brief intro. Tell us who you are and, and what you're all about. Thank you. Thank you very much, Colin. I really appreciate the kind words and you know, I'm very happy to, to be here. I look forward to the dialogue as well. Um, you know, name is Padma Mini. My current role is I play CTO at a, a tech startup called Inquest. You know, our primary focus is file dissection, and we sell it to customers by way of appliances and you know cloud-based email security. Um, but my passion has always been in the industry. You know, I never got into security for uh, the financial aspect of it. You know, since high school, I've been tinkering. And one thing just kind of led to another, and I really kind of just fell into a career of cybersecurity, which you know today uh, puts me in, in in that current role. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, Inquest, I, I guess I first heard about you and Inquest a couple, of, maybe a year or so ago, when I watched a, an amazing talk that you gave at Black Hat on worm charming. Can you just describe? to our listeners what worm charming is all about, what that kind of means in a nutshell. Sure, sure. So that was a, a Black Hat 2019 talk. And you know, maybe just to kind of set the background, I've always been like meticulous deep diver, like, you know, looking at things very in depth, maybe reverse engineering the same, you know, binary for, for months on end. Uh, whereas, you know, now, especially in my, my current role with Inquest, I'm more interested, at least from customer perspective, at malware at scale, so, you know, looking at things at you know the the millions of samples of or files a day, and trying to find kind of the diamond in the rough, and that talk was entirely about doing just that, on top of the virus total data. You know, virus total for those who don't know, uh, is a service that is uh, now owned by Google. It was originally from a, a company called Hispasec, a bunch of really cool guys out of the Malaga area of, of Spain, beachfront town. Uh, and they still maintain that office, by the way. You know, really cool group. Of uh, you know what? I never knew that. It, it's super neat. I, I've actually visited them once, um, and I've had a, I've always had a, a blast talking to those guys. Uh, the Spanish hackers in general um, are dear to my heart. But so Google offers this service, and it's a, a multitude of AV engines, and the entire security industry consumes the feed from it. You know, I I can't even venture to guess how many machine learning models are based off of the vendor consensus that's provided by by virus total and all the biases that come with that. But anyway, long story short, you know, it's this is a, a large corpus of, of daily files. You know, we're looking at you know one to three million files a day being uploaded, and they give you the ability to kind of hook into this file stream and and capture samples that you might uh, find you know interesting. And so my my premise was, we know that we find zero day campaigns in the wild that people are reacting to them, and we also know that folks test their campaigns against the virus total service to see how good their evasive characteristics are. You know, can we go about it the opposite direction and, and try and find these zero days in the wild prior to their actual launch while they're tinkering with their, they're testing um, uh, their samples against uh, you know, the virus total uh, consortium of, of vendors. And so we found three uh, specific cases where, you know, this was the case. 
Uh, you know, some of them had a if memory serves me correctly, a lead time of up to like two weeks, uh, some of them a couple of days, but you know, how neat that you can actually find a, a zero day vulnerability, the exploit of it, which is just about to be launched in a, in a major campaign uh, and, and get that, that, you know, be, you know, heads up on it essentially. And so that talk is what led to the creation of a research apparatus that we then later opened up a portion of it uh, through Inquest Labs, which is how you and I first met Colin. And honestly, I think as someone in the industry who consumes that kind of data, I don't have the megabucks to go and personally have a, an API with VirusTotal to pull out all of these really interesting files. And actually, Inquest Labs makes that readily available in an amazing UI that I can just go and search for all of it and go hunting and go playing. It's a real playground for, for malware analysts and infosec professionals to get their kind of hands dirty. And it, it honestly, it is now my complete go-to for people who who want to know where they can go and get interesting files from and it's not only here's a list of files right it's here's a list of stuff that you know is is interesting for a reason and you can score it and rank it and um you know manipulate the filters as you kind of see fit how, how did inquest start then did it start from that talk is what you're saying so you did this worm charming kind of proof of concept and then labs, Inquest Labs kind of was born from there in 2019, is that right? Well, that's just a, a research data portal that we make available as a, as a you know, actually the word you use is perfect. I'm so happy to hear that. It is designed to be a playground. You know, my goal is to, there's, this is definitely malicious. This is definitely benign. There's a gray area in the center that I'm trying to, to bring to people's attention, to researchers' attention, to allow them to play there find interesting samples, and then determine if they're novel by extracting indicators and then comparing it against our RepDB, which is an aggregate of reputation uh, services. Uh, you know, has this been reported by someone? And then our IOCDB, which is um, in an essence, has anybody been talking about this indicator? You know, we're, we're harvesting from Twitter and blogs and uh, GitHubs and a, a bunch of different sources. And so if the answer is no to both of those questions, then potentially this gray area malware sample you found is you know perhaps the next novel um uh, document for who knows the, the emotet or iced id or trickbot campaign that's about to to unfurl so that that's entirely the, the goal there but no the company's been around since 2013 actually and as a product um the first line of code was even before then it was written in, in 2010. you know the origin story behind the company if, if you find that interesting is um you know, in 2005, I was working at, at Tipping Point. Tipping Point, the IPS company, had hired me to move down to Austin, Texas, which is still where I live. You know, I've been there now, um, you know, 15, 16 years. And they they asked me to start a, a vulnerability research program. We called it the Zero Day Initiative. And it started from nothing and, and it grew to be the biggest on, on the planet. You know, to date, it's the number one contributor of CVEs, the number one... Uh, person behind uh, Microsoft bulletins, you know, the, the researchers behind the ZDI, of course. And while I was there, you know, we were obviously, we were very interested, very intrigued by, we would love to find, obviously we're not looking for, we're not hoping for people to be doing malware out there, but if there was a zero day campaign in the wild, it would be incredible if we had prior knowledge of it based off of overlapping research from somebody that we had, had purchased this intellectual property from, and we could actually block this in the wild. So we are very, on, on trying to discover exploitation of any ZDI bugs in the wild. The reality of it, unfortunately, is you know, while the IPS is an amazing system, 
you've got nanoseconds of response time while you're processing, you know, gigs of traffic, it can't go super deep. And so we had uh, one of our customers at the time was the Pentagon. You know, we were the first IPS to be installed in line at the Pentagon. And this kicked off a series of technical exchange meetings um, where, you know, they obviously wanted us to find zero day exploitation on the network. We wanted to do the same. And although just with the IPS, we couldn't get full coverage, looking at some of the other tools that they had in the SOC there, we were able to create detection logic that would run on different platforms to give us a bigger visibility of the zero day that we had knowledge of. One of those tools was a homegrown tool that they had built in house that actually became inquest multiple years later. That relationship wow. I ended up building with the team there. Um, you know, we became friends. I'd see these guys at Black Hat. And, uh, you know, after Tipping Point, I had done a, a startup called Jumpshot. Uh, we were acquired by Avast. And just as the golden handcuffs were coming off, uh, the leader of that team, Mike Arcamone, who was a you know, close friend of mine at that point, approached me and said, hey, do you want to help me productize? You know this thing. You've, you've worked on it before. Folks are asking about it. Um, let's, you know, let's put this thing uh, to market. That's a crazy story. The way you the way you describe it there, like it was nothing, like you just went to the shop to you know buy some milk, but you know to 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 us mere regular folk, you know, you, you started zero day initiative. initiative. I mean, it's it's it's, it's mind blowing. Well, what was that conversation like though? When you when you were tasked with you know setting up that vulnerability uh, initiative, that program, so ZDI, as you said, the biggest you know kind of uh beast body whatever entity in that in this kind of field on the planet poem to own contest winners all the rest of it. it it's insane how big the zdi is and how much they pay right if you've got a serious vulnerability in a, in a mainstream piece of software you can earn significant amount of money you've got the bug bounty community but then you seem to have like zdi sit above all of that and if you want to make some real money that seems to be where it's at but it, what what kind of business model is it? Do you lose money? It, it, is it revenue generating, or what? How, what was the sell like when you when you kind of first went in with that concept of we're going to buy some bugs off some bad guys or, or some gray hats, black hats, white hats, whatever? Sure. So yeah, that wasn't actually the first iteration, uh, not only of a concept of a, a public bone buying uh, program, but even one that I had worked on. You know, prior to the ZDI. I was working at a company called iDefense, a DC-born startup, and it was under the umbrella of iDefense that, to my knowledge, the first public vulnerability purchasing program ever was born. It was called the Vulnerability Contributor Program, the VCP. And so, when I was at, uh, when I was in college, I went to Tulane University, and you know, this is you know, peeling back onions a little bit further. <laughs> I was at Tulane, and, and when I got to school, you know, this was the biggest network I had like actual access to, right? Like every Ethernet, every room had an Ethernet port. Uh, we were given student ID cards. You can like swipe on on like machines to get your, your lunch or your laundry. And so I was immediately intrigued by it. This, it was the first network that I got my hands on. And frankly, I didn't go to a single class my freshman year because I was awake like 20 hours a day <laughs> just playing with this new toy that I had access to. And so I, you know, throughout the course of, of my uh, college tenure, I had probably figured out how to break into the school systems you know, a dozen times. And every time I had done that, I reported it to the, you know, the, the people who managed it. Um, and I explained to them, you know, how I figured it out and how we could tighten it. And many a time I would keep hearing like, oh, you're just like this guy, Dave Endler, 
that used to be uh, over at, at Tulane. So fast forward to graduation, iDefense is an existing company and they launched this vulnerability contributor program. And what they did to, to entice researchers is they went to bug track and full disclosure, which were the two mailing lists at the time where if you're publishing a bug, that's where you, you put it on. And they you know, crawled those two lists and they found anybody who had submitted more than a, a handful of, of vulnerabilities. And they reached out to them uh, to try and entice them to come sell their research to the vulnerability contributor program. Well, this email that came from my defense came from none other than Dave Enlin. You know, this name that I've been hearing about for years at college. And so, you know, I wrote him back and I said, I've, I've heard about you. Um, and this sounds like a really cool uh, project. You know, I'm not particularly interested in, in being an outside researcher. Who do you guys have on your side that's receiving these things to, to vet them? And he said, no one, you know, I, I'm actually coming to Tulane to, to visit some of my uh, old friends. You know, if you'd like, we can meet and we can have a conversation. And so back in, you know, this is 2002 is when I first met uh, also a you know, super close friend of mine, basically family, Dave Endler. Um, and so he was working at iDefense and ended up recruiting me to be the, the first researcher on the inside uh, to, to validate these, um, these vulnerabilities that people were submitting. And that eventually led to me being the assistant director of, of that uh, program, and then eventually uh, coming to to Austin to start a similar program underneath uh, Tipping Point. That's, that's amazing. Where, where did that, um, so I guess high school level then, where, where did that knowledge come from about how to break into a network when you go to Tulane? Like, where, where did that skill come from? How did you learn that? Sure. I mean, so we're talking about, you know, I was born in 1980. So I, I started in, uh, I started pretty late. Most folks were, were hacking on computers that were like, you know, Commodores. My first computer was a, a Pentium 75, which sounds absurdly old right now. But I can tell you at the, at the time, <clears throat> I was behind most folks. But I, I had, I always have had a fascination with like robotics and electronics and, and taking things apart. And, you know, I, I remember when I was, couldn't have been more than sister wasn't born yet so i couldn't have been more than 10 or 11 but i was visiting some uncles in germany and they had a you know they lived in like a, a condo complex and there was like this line of garages behind them and so my uncle's garage door opener i had opened it and i figured out how to play with the dip switches to target any individual um, garage and <laughs> you know i would sit there behind the shades and when someone came home, I would like play this prank on them. I was like a little kid, like they close the door and I'd open it again. You know, they close and I'd open and I just you know, would laugh about this, this frustration. But that, that had always been there. So by the time I got to high school, I got my hands on a, on a 2600 uh, quarterly magazine. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this, um, this publication before. Not one and they, it's, it's, a, it's a hacker quarterly. Um, it, it was you know, born out of New York and then got nationwide distribution. And they would have uh, monthly meetups. It was like the first Thursday of every month. And in New York, the meetup was at a payphone bank on like 59th Street in Lexington. So folks would just Amazing. get together and they would, you know, and no one cared. You could be, you know, old, young, you know, fat, skinny, the, no, the color of your skin didn't matter. Your age didn't matter. It was just a uh, collective fascination with, uh, with technology. And so I started getting into phone freaking. You know, this was before cell phones. Um, pay phones were how you made phone calls to, to folks. And so one of the first things I had uh, learned to build was a red box. You know, this mm. was a device that you would literally hold up to the, the speaker of the phone and push a button and it would replicate the DTMF tones that made it seem as if you put a quarter into the, the terminal. 
And so this is kind of how <laughs> I started getting into, you know, this, this realm. At some point I got my hands on a laptop and I got a copy of, of soft ice, which was like, you know, the, uh, this yeah. is somewhere at the time. And then that was it. Like that was the last puzzle I ever picked up because now um, I could leverage that to, to dive into the guts of, of anything. And, and it just, it was as a hobby, I just kind of learned uh, through example and through random mentorship. Yeah, that's so fascinating. It's so familiar as well. The whole foam freaking, the soft ice. I've bricked so many machines playing around with soft ice and, <laughs> you know, overwriting things in, in, in memory that I, I shouldn't have had access to and stuff like that. It's it's amazing. That's, that's honestly fascinating. Uh, but you also, so you've got this kind of, this is where I see you as like this unicorn of mm. people that I don't come across very often because you've got this hacker mindset. You clearly extremely knowledgeable within the malware reverse engineering space forensics all that kind of stuff with that mindset of wanting to pick things apart and i see a lot of that in the industry don't get me wrong certainly within the field that i'm in like exceptionally gifted people but you've also got this business mentality right so you can see and smell opportunities and you know being in like assistant director positions and stuff to, and having businesses bought out by larger enterprises and stuff. That's not, that's not normal. So where, where does that come from? How did you develop that kind of side of you? It's, it's an interesting question. I mean, it, I think that's also a form of, of hacking, right? Like what is hacking other than examining a system, poking and prodding at it, you know, figuring out how to, you know, navigate whether it's a bureaucracy or a series of, of, of rules, you know, I, I consider it to also be hacking. I, I think with passion plus time, you'll be able to, you know, afford some of that success. But obviously, a lot of it is luck, too. If you look at, and, and I do study this because as a, you know, operator of a startup and an advisor to multiple startups, you know, I consume and I nerd out about the, the mechanism and machinery of, you know, how to do the business side, how, how it, Talk to VCs, how to talk to to customers, uh, you know, to investors, to even analysts like like Gartner. Like it's all um, a system, it's all a game, and, and something to study. But if you look at at the literature, all things being equal, it's really part of it is just luck. It's timing, you know, being at the right place at the right time. Uh, so I think luck, hard work, and lateral thinking just combined just happen to fall uh, in that th direction. Uh, some t I was thinking about as as you were talking there. Um, one of our mutual contacts who owns a, uh, a cyber assurance company, and he's a, you know he's a technical uh, person also. Um, and one of the things that really resonated with me a couple of days ago is that he said when he built his company, he turned into a salesperson, and it's not and he never thought that that would happen to him. But to grow his organization, he had to sell himself and his and and his and his business. So, how did you how did you find that as being like a natural born? Because um, I think you really articulate, you explain things really really well. Was that something that you've just been you've been able to do from 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 young, or were you did you pick those skills up along the way? Well, first of all, thank you. Um, I always thought I had a tendency to to mumble and ramble, but <laughs> thanks for Not, that's our you know, job. For, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it, a, a large portion of it certainly is from you know a side effect of my father, my upbringing. I am first generation American. My first language was Farsi. Uh, both of my parents immigrated from Iran in the seventies. Uh, just around the time of of the the coup in Iran, the political transition, they intended actually on going back. 
but because of all that um, uncertainty, ended up staying in, in the United States. So, you know, just being the, the, the son of a very hardworking um, immigrant father and just learning from how he did uh, what he did and, and watching him work incredibly hard, I think that was a, a, a certainly a, a huge aspect of, um, you know, how I got to, to where I am. I mean, and my father is truly my, my role model. You know, I look up to him to this day, if I'm ever in severe trouble or I have a big decision to make, you know, he's my first phone call. So that's, that's definitely a massive unfair advantage uh, I had is, is, is getting that tutelage from, from day one. Yeah. I think it's really, it's really good to have that support. And I often personally, I find it's where, you know, my dad doesn't understand this industry whatsoever. And that's a good thing because you can put a different perspective, the reality, you know, the people, you look at that side of things about decisions to make as opposed to like what's at the end of it with the business side of things. Um, yeah. That's fascinating. When you talk about Jumpshot, which was acquired by Avast, this was funded through Kickstarter, right? It's a business which had some kind of crowdsourcing, crowdfunding. How did that go? What was the rationale behind all of that? Sure. So, um, you know, the, the net net is we had iDefense, which sold to VeriSign and I left immediately because I just, I don't, I'm not one to work at a large company. It's the, the bureaucracy of it. I mean, even you know, some of the vernacular in these large company contracts, like I'm not even kidding you. If you dream of an idea, they own it. Like I just can't bring myself to <laughs> put my name on a piece of paper that says something so absurd. So, you know, I left as soon as VeriSign had bought the company. That's when I went down to uh, work in Austin for Tipping Point. When Tipping Point sold to HP, it was the same story. You know, again, I left. Um, and so we, you know, Dave and I actually, so Dave and I worked together at iDefense. We worked together at, at Tipping Point, uh, very close friends. Then him and I, uh, we left at the same time when HP bought uh, Tipping Point, And we threw all of our uh, collective money and resources into launching JumpShot. We actually didn't use Kickstarter as a funding source. We used Kickstarter as a marketing platform, realistically. Mm, we, amazing. instead of instead of paying people to beta test our software, people paid us to get access oh to the software <laughs> earlier, <laughs> right? So, and, a good idea. and they were our champions, right? And we, of course we gave them, um, you know, they were unlimited for life. We gave all sorts of, of perks and whatnot. And so, you know, our thought process when we were starting JumpShot was actually, again, to bring it back to my father, is I know that I'm not the only one who goes home for the holidays and is sitting there removing some crazy malware from these Windows systems. And when it was really gnarly, I would end up booting into a Linux environment and then opening it up forensically. So our idea was that if we can automate that process and then target people that were like us, you know, technical folks were helping their families and model it in such a way that it was like infectious, like you could buy the stick and give it to somebody and it would spread like that, that we could do, we could get like a viral thing going here, right? Like target the folks who they feel this pain the most, this frustration of having to deal with, with dirty PCs um, and, and see where it goes from there. So we, you know, certainly the, the monies that came from Kickstarter were helpful. We ended up uh, hiring some uh, junior employees uh, off of it to, to help us get to the next stage. But, but realistically at that point, we were already two years in it was very heavily developed. It, it took a lot of reverse engineering efforts, actually, for us to even create the core platform. You know, the basis here was you need to put a USB stick into a Windows PC. A cartoon character pops up automatically. You say go, and he 
makes a one-time boot change to your computer, shuts it down, boots up in Linux. This has to be completely um, invisible to the user, right? So we did some clever things like, you know, custom Grub backgrounds, custom Linux bootloader background, X Windows loads up, it had a background, and then a full screen browser would pop up. And that we had a progress bar that was transitioning from like Grub to bootloader to X Windows to uh, browser, <laughs> but it looked very, very smooth. And we would even do things like, you know, this is not going to work if I got to ask my dad for his Wi-Fi password because mm. he's not going to know it. It's going to be a, a quick hurdle that's going to end us from, from working. So we even went through the hassle of reverse engineering the way of pulling that out so that it was completely seamless. We would get the wireless, we would jump on, and we would you know, clean the computer from this, this um, uh, forensic uh, uh, perspective. So that was the, the major premise there. And Kickstarter allowed us to get the message out. At the time, it was still pretty new. Um, when we launched, we were in the top 10 best you know, like funded tech products ever. Now, I mean, it's been severely eclipsed how much money you can raise on, on that platform. But it really was a, a marketing exercise at the end of the day. That's really, really clever. How, how does it... So you you know you start a business you you develop this really cool product which is clearly has a need in the marketplace have some awesome marketing skills how does it come along that a vast or a big beast comes along and wants to buy you what does that look like do they just, just do you just get an email one day or, or or do you have like an existing relationship with you know whoever wants to buy you how does it work so in, in that case. I, I don't know how it works in general, I, or I can tell you empirically how this one worked. We, it's so funny how it, it, the industry is such a fascinating industry. There's all these malware comparatives, so many of them, but apparently, and I didn't know this at the time, one of the, at least at the time, one of the biggest ones was, it was computer world. And it was literally one guy, it was a reporter who he would give these ratings on the AV engines. And he was just really good at it. He had a home rig and really good collection of malware samples. He really understood the problem space. And we didn't even know about this guy existing, but he got his hands on JumpShot, tested it, and it got great reviews. And why wouldn't it? We have a huge unfair advantage. Like we're running out of band. I'm running on the metal. So if you have a root kit, a boot kit, master boot record infection, whatever you have going on is completely dormant at the time that I'm analyzing the system. So if I can forensically open it up and look at the startup chain, I don't have to worry about the operating system lying to me or my process getting killed. So we had a huge unfair advantage and you know, we took hours to do what we did. I considered it. I remember telling people it's like the self-cleaning mode on your oven right? like set it on for like a Friday night and let it go off and, and, and do its thing. So we got great reviews for, for malware removal from uh, this computer world article. And suddenly we were on a bunch of people's radars because I didn't know this, but AV vendors were, you know, they respected this guy a lot and, and getting good grades from him was something that was like nerve wracking for them when this time came around. So that put us on the radar and I guess the timing was just good. They had reached out actually to Dave and, you know, we fostered a conversation. Um, at some point they ended up flying down to Austin and, and meeting us in our tiny little two room, you know, office that we had set up to, you know, a place to, to hang our hat really was a room where Dave and I sat next to each other with a chessboard in between us because we were always playing a game of chess. Uh, we got quite good at it over the years that we're doing the startup. Um, but from our perspective also, you know, we, we had reached a point where, you know, we had grown to tens of thousands of users, but to get to the next level was going to require us putting money into advertising, radio ads, you know, this kind of thing. And we really didn't want to go down that path, right? It was, 
it was such a fun technological, like we were just building cool technology and people were using it. As we started looking at what it would take to get to the next level, and we saw uh, interest from a company like Avast, we wanted to jump on it because, you know, get this, in the 18 months that I, after the acquisition, we went from a couple of tens of thousands of users to millions of users because Avast has a quarter of a billion users and they could, you know, upsell uh, to some of them who we thought we could, we could benefit. Um, also a very neat thing that we had done there was we wouldn't just upsell to anybody randomly. We had figured out over the course of all these systems we had cleaned, who are the systems that we would have the best chance of really improving with, uh, with JumpShot? Uh, and we would only offer it to those folks. So, you know, with quarter of a billion people, even though it's a small fraction of, of high knowledge, like it just started churning and growing. And it was phenomenal for me from an engineering perspective, because how often do you get to build something on, and this was a, an Amazon cloud project, how often do you get to build something like that and then really rev up the engine going from thousands to millions? Like it was a great, um, experience and scale that that is amazing hmm. at, at what point then does the business become too big that you you said you don't want to work for large organizations and all of the you know vernacular and all the bullshit that goes on in a big org organization i definitely resonate with there um how big's too big what do, what are the signposts for you that you think right we need to we need to look at an end game here yeah you know I, I think my favorite time in my career was probably working at, at Tipping Point. You know, it was pure R&D. Um, I didn't have any of the strains of, of uh, budgeting or sales or, or anything like that. And actually, you had asked a question about how does the company profit? Like, how, what were the business model behind uh, vulnerability research programs? I'll, I'll swing back to that in this, um, in this response. But Tipping Point, a company while I was there, was like 200 people, 250 people. And it was just run so intimately. It was just, it, and that to me is, is like the peak of the sweet spot. I think more than a couple hundred people, you start to, to lose that, that ability. There's, there was a cross-pollination, right? One of the reasons why I went to Tipping Point is I really wanted to learn from the hardware guys. They were, they were building custom ASICs, right? Like this was, you know, FPGAs that they were writing to, to do custom, to do the, the network throughputs that they were handling. I mean, these guys had an X-ray machine inside of the office to be able to to photograph chips, to be able to you know figure things out about you know how they how they worked or what problems they were having. That. I love it. Right. So every single vertical in the company had had really talented people, and they they commingled. You know, we used to have these Thursday beer thirties at four thirty. Everyone would go down to the game room, and people were playing ping pong, and and everyone had a beer in their hand, and you know, we'd go around the room, and and the head of every single department would give a very open, transparent status on. How do things look that week? What are they working on that week? And so it still felt like a, a cohesive team, not everybody working towards the same goal, like hobbyists working on a, mm. um, a kit car or, or you know, like a band who comes together to practice. And so that is the energy that I look to tap into as opposed to you know, your cog in the machine. This is what I'm working on. And this is the only thing that I care about. You know, that's somebody else's job. If I start hearing things like that where people aren't passionate about the entirety of the, the, the collective mission, uh, that's a sign of, of uh, environment that I don't find healthy to work in at least. Mm. That's, that's really interesting. Um, so, so you've, you, you've, you know, created multiple companies and sold multiple companies. And so when, when do you think that that cycle ever stops for you then? When do, when do you, cause you, you're great, you're creating successful companies. So they're always going to, 
hopefully, touch wood, they're always going to grow and become successful and become bigger than you want them to be. So when does that, when do you, or do you, do you can, can you not stop? It says if you just have to go to the next one and the next one and the next one. Frankly, I can't wait to stop. I look forward to security <laughs> being my avocation and not my vocation anymore. I want to go back to being a security hobbyist. Because honestly, the things I really enjoy doing, and I still get some time to do that, but those times are more fleeting and they generally come at a sacrifice of my own sleep. Like I've got to carve out an evening to just tax my body in order to get the things that I really want to get done that, that, that like, you know, keep me up at night, literally, uh, to get those done. I, I think this will probably be the last uh, startup that I do. That initial growth portion, it's a lot of work, it's a lot of effort, it's a lot of stress. Um, just second only to health stress is financial stress. And you know, when we did Jump Shot, I had planned on not having a salary for a year. And of course, everything takes twice as long and is twice as expensive as you anticipate. So by the time we got our first revenue from Kickstarter, you know, two years in, it was it was quite stressful. Um, and I, I don't wish that kind of strain on anyone. And I probably at this age couldn't go about doing it again, to be frank. I guess, yeah, the... Uh uh the, the kind of work-life balance and having to you know you have a mortgage to pay you've got bills to pay you've got mouths to feed and things like that all of a sudden that that takes a lot of priority i guess doesn't it yeah absolutely i mean it's uh it you know the level of work that i'm doing now is certainly taxing on my friends and family and i'm grateful to them for kind of absorbing it and, and allowing me the freedom uh to do that you know i mean you, know, you can see back here i've got a a, a crib there we've got a, a six-week-old to to take care of and a six-week-old and a startup are, are polar opposites. Those two things do not go hand in hand. Yeah. You must be. You must have some superhuman mental capability because I remember, you know, when I when I had when I had mine, I, I don't think I could do many things at all. Build a startup, a cutting edge startup, and do projects on the side and invest here and advise there, and you know, you must be running on two hours of sleep and constant espresso you know how do you how, you know, how do you do it like what's you what's what's your what's your outside release is, is there anything that you do outside of technology that keeps you focused and sharp yeah you know I've, I've always been a huge fan of combat sports i've done karate and, and wrestling from a young age um, in my late 20s i got heavily into boxing and kickboxing and uh, and jujitsu and so I, actually, while I was doing jump shot, I was training 30 hours a week um, doing full contact martial arts. I mean, I just really loved uh, what I was doing there. And, and frankly, if I don't think I could have done one or the other, the two really helped me push through both of them because I would hit a, a physical exhaustion on the one and then have the energy and, and like, it, you know, the battery had built up like while I spent two hours uh, rolling or, or strength and conditioning, I was thinking about the, the tech stuff, the computer stuff, uh, and then I could cut over to it. And then when I got exhausted doing the computer thing, you know, I would jump on my bike and, and ride it over to the gym and, and, you know, get back on the mats. And so the two kind of helped, uh, you know, keep me going. And I think that still applies today. Like I'm a little bit you know, less time for, uh, for personal exercise. It's, it's you know, running and biking, not so much uh, 30 hours of, of heavy training. But having these multiple roles kind of helps. When I get stuck on one, I can flip to thinking about uh, something else um, and just kind of you know, change of pace. But things are always keeping me moving. I don't get off my game, so to speak. There's no downtime. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, 
and as you as you were saying that some of the most successful people i've i know and have spoken to have very similar mindset uh, around you know kind of sports and exercise and stuff and how that kind of really benefits their game in the workplace um maybe i should pull my finger out and get i know i'm thinking the same thing (laughs) yeah i keep i keep thinking the same thing yeah yeah um open rce how did that start um how did you start that project and i can still see i was on there earlier today that there's contributions going on is it something that you're actively involved in or is it something that you've had to give up because of other commitments so OpenRC now is in an archive state. It sits there just as a kind of homage to the yeah. past. I tried to revamp it in, I forget when it was, the time is all a blur, but in, in somewhat recent history, I tried to revamp it. But the reality of it is when I first launched that, there was a need for it, right? Today, people publish you know, with their own names on their company blogs. They tweet, they have their own mediums. It's kind of distributed and all over. Whereas at the time, um, you know, companies were not sponsoring their employees to write blogs about technical things, reverse engineering. So you needed to have a, a home for it, right? The home is kind of distributed now, as opposed to having a single place. But I modeled that off of, you know, one of my my mentors and someone that I looked up to, um, Greg Hoagland and Jamie Butler had made rootkit.com. And I think in the about section of OpenRC, I even start with, you know, that thing that they built very much. I tried to model this, but instead of for rootkits, it was specific to uh, reverse engineering. And so you know, that's kind of where the impetus of, of that was. And, and the launch was, it was the first, I think it was in 2005, um, at the first recon uh, conference in Montreal. This is the reverse engineering conference, um, a single track conference. One of my favorites, actually, recon and echo party in Argentina are my two favorite conferences uh, on the planet. But while I was uh, working on a reverse engineering framework and, and getting ready for a talk at that conference, um, I put this thing together as well. And so we kind of release it all at the same time. Hey, here's a framework for how to do reverse engineering. Here's a website to kind of help guide you. Um, and it took some effort. You know, it was curation effort. I would reach out to folks and encourage them to write articles. I would help edit them. Um, you know, it was a lot of effort behind the scenes to ensure that content was fresh. It was basically like managing a publication at the time. Mm, that's interesting it's a cool concept a really cool concept i think i'm interested to know like and we've spoken a lot about the successes you've had in the industry with coming up with an idea growing a concept having other people follow you and build on that journey and then ultimately it you know becomes this big beast that no doubt you make a load of money off and then you can go into you know other ideas have there any have there been situations in the industry where you've like you've gone down a particular route that's not been successful that you know isn't something that will feature on your linkedin profile that you you know when you kind of come up with an idea and it doesn't work or it's not right for the industry and how how do you kind of deal with that that's a you know it's a really good question and knowing what i know now what you should do is fail fast and start again one of the benefits I, I have not done, you know, my last two companies were iDefense, you know, while I was a stockholder, you know, I didn't found that company. I was employed like number 20 something at, at tipping point. I was like employee number like hundred and something, um, you know, with jump shot, I founded it with, with, um, with inquest. I'm one of the co-founders there. So 
it, it's a you know it's a different animal uh, the first two versus the last two. But what, one of the things I've come to learn, and actually the example I like to give when I when I advise folks who are on an idea that they're emotionally stuck to a little bit, is um, is the Angry Birds model. If you look at Angry Birds, you know that's a huge global success, right? It, it's a household uh, iconic name, like a you know almost like a Mickey Mouse, right? That was like their fiftieth release. Right, the company behind it had like dozens and dozens of failures beforehand before they hit one that just completely spiraled out of control. So being able to rapidly, you know, at the end of the day, right, timing and luck is a big part of it. So you have an idea, you get the team, you know, you're lining up the shot, so to speak. And ideally what you would do is you would take it and you, if it doesn't work, you would go to the next one and take another shot. So this is what I recommend to people. In my own case, I'm a little bit more headstrong and bullish. When I hit a, a roadblock, instead of giving up on it, um, you know, we'll, we'll pivot. As an example, you know, Inquest started off, our DNA is on-premise, high-throughput network appliances. And there is still and always will be a market for that. But the direction is the cloud, obviously. Everybody is, is jumping to the cloud. Even folks who you would traditionally consider might be a little bit more uh, guarding of their data, like healthcare, insurance, you know, de defense departments, things like this. You know, even they are are moving to the cloud. You know, do we just throw in the towel and say, okay, we're an appliance only company, and like that's where we're going to stay? No, we we you know we move with it. We looked at at options, and we're like, here's the technology that we have, and we'll talk to you know dozens of CISOs and see what kind of problems they have, and you know, here's how best we can deliver what we have to them in a way that will solve a, a problem for them. So I think, you know, pivoting, if you keep, and maybe this isn't the case for everybody, I found that if you continue to grind, there will be some success. As long as you are pushing the envelope forward, there will be some, some uh, relative success. You know, you may not hit the CrowdStrike IPO type of ideas, but you will still exit both, you know, financially and mentally, it will have been uh, lucrative and, and worthwhile. How do you come up with your ideas? Is it, is it just something that you either look for gaps in the market or is it something that you experience? You realize no one's, but where's the solution for this? I'm going to go build it. Like, how does that work for you? I think a lot of it just kind of, it's never just me. You know, I don't have mm. some epiphany that I, it mostly comes from conversations. Uh, you know, with, with close friends and, and you, you brainstorm, right? You come up with an idea because here's something to consider. You may have a great idea, but that may not be the best idea for you to execute on, right? Your, your best idea might be the one that you don't even like the most, but it has the highest chance of, of having a, a success. So, you know, as an example, when uh, Dave and I were, were talking about different you know, ideas, we knew we wanted to work together, right? We had left the company together. We're very close friends. We committed to, to putting, uh, uh, you know, to committing our, 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 our life savings to taking this risk, you know, essentially. Uh, and we had many an idea. Some of them, we just didn't think that we could pull off with the, the capital that we had or the connections that we had. Right? So we, we, and we were talking about things like, you know, from click fraud to credit card fraud to, um, you know, this was a post AV, you know, cleanup thing. In the end, we had a number of ideas and we chose the one that we thought we would be able to, to deliver. I think um, something I, I imagine, and I've been in this situation myself a little bit, not certainly not when, you know, starting a company or anything, I've never done that, but I, I'm always afraid of like trying to stifle somebody's passion 
And so if someone comes and says, oh, I've got this great idea and, you know, it's going to make loads of money and we should do this. We should, I mean, like, oh, actually, I can see a load of barriers in the way of that. But I don't want to say that because I, I want this passion. I want all of this good mindset. It's such a hard, I guess maybe that's where you find, you know, the real um, kind of relationship skills, um, uh, you know, giving feedback and, and developing on ideas together in a, in a, in a way which, you know, you, you're honest and stuff like that. Maybe that's the, the kind of foundation and fundamental. Um, I, you're as well as the business side of things. You're also you've got a few other things, a few other kind of um, fingers in pies, as it were. So you've got a bar that you own in in Austin, right? How's that? How's that's that true. going? Has Joe Rogan yeah. been yet? <laughs> I don't. I actually, I, I don't know if he if he has or not. We'll have to uh, we'll have to install some face ID or something to look for him on our on our yeah. cameras. We, um, so I, I started the bar and you know, how funny the, the kid from New York has a country music saloon in, in Texas. You know, I started the bar with a, a close friend of mine, um, who's actually someone who, who I work with at, at tipping point. I had met him in, in Austin and we had brought him on as, as an intern at the ZDI. You know, we were uh, good friends and, and he was very talented, very smart guy. His name was Logan Brown. And, uh, over the course of, um, my tenure at, at the Zero Day Initiative after I had left, another reason why I had left at the time is the team was at a peak, right? It's very hard for me to leave a group that I have kind of fostered. And I, I especially if the team is hurting, I won't do it. So it's rare to find the window where the team is at the peak, all the roles are filled. So it was great timing uh, for me to leave. You know, two years, three years after I had left um, uh, Tipping Point, Logan and the crew went and started Exodus Intelligence. You know, that's an offensive uh, security research yeah. firm uh, here in Austin, Texas, um, who I sit on their uh, board of advisors as well. And so Logan and I uh, started the bar with with a third friend. You know, we wanted to invest in a local business, and a lot of the, the the deals that had come in front of us just seemed kind of absurd. The amount of money that they wanted for uh, the ownership uh, percentage. So we thought to ourselves, let's just do this on our own. Um, and we, we started this saloon and, and this is very interesting to me too, right? Cause you've got like inquest is very high ticket sale price, but very slow sales cycle. You know, it could take us two years to close a deal, but it's a you know, tremendous deals. Whereas on the other side, you've got San Jack saloon, which is you know, like a $6 average ticket and very rapid fire. So it's two completely different things in terms of business. But even that was fascinating to me because I got to play with. Google ads for the first time uh, for, for both companies. And you're just putting yourself in the mindset of these polar opposites of, of types of customers that you're going after. It gave me the ability to, to pull two different strings and learn from both sides, uh, if that makes any sense. It does, it makes it a does. lot of sense. It's bizarre how much sense that makes when you think actually they've got nothing. It's, it is amazing, isn't it? Not you're right. so inspired. I want to go and start a new company now. I'll be honest. <laughs> have, have you signed any deals in your bar? for inquest have you, have you I, you know, I'm, I'm sure i'm sure we've had uh because i definitely prior to the pandemic at least um yeah. and the bar is only a couple blocks away from, from uh, the building that i live in um, so i jump on my bike and, and be there all the time we've even hosted conferences on the second floor you know we'll donate the space and you know cut the drink price down to cost and just you know have like 100 folks there it's been a great fun friendly resource uh I, i'm certain deals have been made there but there's not any that come specifically to mind at the moment we you talked about um like uh, earlier on large vendors we touched on 
CrowdStrike, HPE, Avast, and all all the others. And what what I'm finding the the trend that I'm seeing in the last twelve months is a lot of these big vendors are getting popped. Um, you had I've noticed today Acer they're they're up against a fifty million dollar ransom. Really? Yeah, it's it, yeah mental. So, um, what do you think? What's what do you think's happening in this in 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 the space at the moment? Because generally, it's always been yeah, you've had your big. Equifaxes and all the other, other large breaches, data breaches. But now it's tech vendors all of a sudden are making mistakes and slipping up. Um, do you think that that nation states and other actors are focusing on the technology space, or we've just been not eating our own dog food for the past twenty years, and now the the chickens are coming home to roost? It's look. It's a it's a good observation. It's a it's a solid question. You know for. For what it's worth, in my humble opinion on this matter, it is, look, security is hard. Security is also annoying. Right? Like every time I pull out my phone to scroll through my list of two factors, I think to myself, like, this is my fault. Like, you know, the, the lawyers have ruined the pools for everybody. You can't have diving boards anymore and, and, and fun stuff. And like the computer hackers have ruined the ease of, of technology. I've got this beautiful touchscreen phone and I got to, you know, pause my experience to go do this, this multi-factor. But at the end of the day, Software is dynamic and it's moving. These organizations are huge. They hire a lot of people. Um, you know, look how, you know, let's put the tech to the side for a second. How hard would it be for a nation state to implant someone in a company? Like, trivial, right? Like it, there's no way that you're not, it, it, they're doing it to folks like the, the CIA and the NSA. Like there's no way that a company is going to be able, a global company is going to be able to prevent um, an internal, you know, spy from being implanted. And so e even if you can't stop that, you know, forget about the aspect of being able to stop someone from breaking on the outside, right? You've got this constantly changing ecosystem, new technologies coming in people standing stuff up. Um, it, it, especially if you are, are large and you're targeted, you know, it's only going to be a matter of time. I actually find it super impressive. For example, that FireEye discovered, um, you know, the entire SolarWinds hack, it, they're a large company. They got popped obviously through this thing, but they had the wherewithal to determine mm -hmm. it, right? To track it down. And that's what you need to be good at, right? If you're, I, I don't blame someone for getting um, attacked. You know, I may hold them accountable uh, if they're unable to to detect or to, to determine that that's going on and, and to reduce that, that dwell time. I mean, they're, they're being targeted at the end of the day is what it comes down to. You, you look at, and supply chain will continue being more and more of um, an area of, of research for, for folks. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, it, it, I mean, if you're CrowdStrike, you've got to be shitting yourself, haven't you? Because like, surely you're like you're the, one of the biggest targets on the planet, given the reach that you have in the organizations and the, you've basically got root access to every machine in the world. Um, it's it's fascinating, and I think the FireEye stuff is. I, I've always thought that myself. Like, you know, the guy who discovered that in the logs and went, hmm, something's not right here. Where are these teeth? I mean, it's a bad day at the office, but he's had a great day at the office. He's like, that's what he comes to work for. You know, this kind of threat hunting or whomever it may be. 
Uh, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in the office when they found Just that. Desktop's on fire. I, I'll be honest though, I still don't get it. Why the fuck did they steal a bunch of red team tools that no doubt they've, you know, they've already infiltrated like to solar wind. Surely they don't need some 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 fucking red team scripts that FireEye have developed. And albeit I'm sure they're very good, but they're from what they released, it wasn't as if FireEye had sent like some zero days or any any kind of state secrets. This was just like run of the mill exploit stuff. Yeah, pen testing tools. Weird, weird. So, yeah, yeah, pen testing tools, right? Why would you steal them? What you know, know what I chalk that up to? I mean, keep in mind that this was going on for at least, from what we understand, nine months. So you just start getting probably in, in the same way that people make mistakes, right? Like an attacker has to be right once to get in. Defender's got to be right all the time. But once he's in, he only has to mess up once in order to reveal himself, right? That that um, asymmetrical uh, uh, balance mm -hmm. flips when it comes to being discovered. So nine months into this campaign, you know, maybe someone got a little bit sloppy, got a little bit overexcited, tried to grab something that didn't. Good. Good thing that they did and good thing that someone noticed because otherwise how long would this have gone on for you know mm. prior to it being discovered and, and we talk about attacking the companies i am sure solar winds wasn't the only ones that were no, attacked. in the same yeah. way you just mentioned like you know crowdstrike you know probably has one of the la world's largest botnets i mean what is an agent-based security solution other than <laughs> a, a, a botnet right it's solar a Wind, same a thing bot yeah. Botnet Ruke. yeah you know same thing they've got uh if you can pop the SolarWinds ecosystem, you've now got the entirety of their, their customer base. So I'm sure many a supply chain based vendor like that was looked at. That just happened to be the one that, that fell over. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating. Because would... An intern set a password to whatever <laughs> one, two, three. <laughs> what? That's seriously got to be the most, the worst story I've read in so long was that, was that, that Twitter thread about, oh my God, it's unbelievable. I'm reading one. I'm reading one now um, about that, that CCTV company who oh, had the. Yeah. Uh, it's so funny. Uh, a sales guy from that company reached out to me uh, two two days ago and said, "Do I want to, uh, do, do I want to go on a webinar about their new facial recognition technology?" And my response was, "No, <laughs> I don't. I don't think so." <laughs> what was it? Default creds um, left super admin account. But these are the things, Pedro. I don't get like what what what's happening all of a sudden. Like what are we just becoming lax or i don't i don't have the answer for it and i don't think anyone what has the answer i mean yeah we're, you know in my organization we're critical national infrastructure and so super important we're protecting the internet for millions of people here in the uk and clearly a nation state target but we can't reverse engineer every patch that comes in from every piece of software that we own we we would never detect solar winds like FireEye did we haven't got the resource the skills or what have you it almost feels like to me and i'm sure this goes on but maybe not to the level that i i'm thinking of it that it would be great for and maybe in the in the us it would be someone like the dhs or the fbi or whoever it is and here in the uk like the ncsc would take like a list of all of the top vendors that you know the cni companies use and say right let's do a landscape test here and say right the top five that you're all all the technologies that you're all using and we're going to fund some proper analysis here and do some independent testing and and we can feed that to the industry so we know that you know you guys in the uk us wherever you know are using technology that at least they've analyzed and verified but that's i don't think that that really goes on to the level that i i would want to be sure of no i don't think it goes on um in any any 
like automated fashion you know obviously you've got the other bits of uh, testing that vendors have to submit their hardware for so they get a nice little FIPS mm. badge or you know common criteria but it's not an automated thing of no, hey, a patch have... comes out and it goes through common criteria it just doesn't really happen does it the amount of, you mentioned the CCTV stuff the amount of back doors that are in yeah. firmware right and you Pedram you alluded to the other before about you know taking uh, microscopes to FPTAs and stuff like that and finding all of these weird and wonderful side channel attacks and you know hardware security is just insane um but it's so specialized to to go and find these vulnerabilities that no one bothers doing it so to, to a, any great length or any great degree but i mean I even outside of these like a supply chain attack is you know it's sophisticated right these mm. and writing there are some beautiful exploits out there right there are folks who are chaining together you know, 10 vulnerabilities to escape a sandbox here and privilege escalate there. And it's just a, a beautiful symphony of, of vulnerabilities that they've chained together to, to create an exploit. But what is the number one way today? Like all the headlines that we're hearing, I mean, at least from my perspective, it sounds like it's an open S3 bucket, you know, it was a, an unsecured Elasticsearch. Someone forgot to, to, to close the door to just an open you know, Elasticsearch, it was, it, it's really silly things that, that amount to, to hygiene. And, you know, it's hard to postulate how to fix this. I mean, we're just, we move faster than we can validate. And for good reason, like the, the progress is more important than keeping things secure, it seems, or at least in terms of like the, the main goals. Like you're not going to slow down your company's release cycle that's going to cost you from mm. delivering new product to customers because you want to be a thousand percent sure that the security is right. You know, at some point, and I, I do, I hear what you're saying, Colin. I, I do think at, at some point there needs to be almost like some, some kind of, of, of government driven, you know, public sector, um, global sock almost mm. an assistance, especially for the SMBs, right? If you're a, a doctor's office uh, with, with you know, 20 employees, like you're the one who really needs it. At least these huge companies like Equifax have the, the budget and the staffing to, to do something about um, about their own security posture, the vast majority of small businesses, that's too tall in order. Like they're just too busy getting the day-to-day -day done. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And healthcare, as you touch on there, is just, you know, when we look at WannaCry and, and the impact of, of that kind of, um, you know, malware in that environment, they just are not geared up for it. You know, that is their, their primary focus is their day job. Of course it is. Well, listen, I think, I mean, this is an industry that it just keeps on giving. I'm excited, Pedram, to watch from afar and admire you and your progress in the industry. And hopefully, um, I'm, I'm certainly feeling so inspired from today's conversation. So thank you for sharing all of your thoughts and your insights into the industry. Um, and um, I guess I, I can't wait to see what ne what's next for Inquest as well. I'm looking forward to joining you for a beer in your bar when we're allowed out over to Texas. Um, and we'll definitely treat you to uh, uh, to some over in the UK if you ever get over in it, over here as well. So, but thank you for taking the time to join us today, Pedram. It's really been um, really been a fun one. Oh, thank you so much, Colin. Ashley, it was a pleasure, and I yeah. look forward to keeping in touch. Great.